The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So throughout the month of October, the pastoral staff will be teaching through a series on this topic of uh, serving others uh, as a central part of our identity as followers of Jesus. And as we're going to discover through this series, um, that as God calls us into service, that level of serving happens at every level of our life, whether it's within our family, uh, our church, our community, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth, what we would typically call missions. And, uh, and so we're going to unpack that week after week as to what this picture of a serving life, of giving ourselves to others, looks like in light of what the Bible teaches us. So next week, Pastor Peter will unpack for us Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 to 13, and give us a picture of what it means for Christians to serve one another within a church context. The week after that, I'm going to be on the pulpit, and we're going to zoom in even tighter on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And I'm going to unpack the different kinds of people that God raises up to equip us for this work and look at issues like prophets and apostles and teachers and evangelists and, and, and see what it means for the church to be filled with that kind of spirit-empowered individuals who are equipping the saints. The week after that, Pastor Eugene will be preaching on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 12. And he's going to look at how our serving of others can become one of the greatest instruments of witness to our community and the world around us. Okay? And I'm still debating on it, but there may be one more message at the final Sunday, uh, the week after that, possibly, on uh, world missions and things like that. But I'm still sort of praying through that. The title of this series is Useful Hands, and it comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. And it says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Paul is addressing those who used to steal, thieves, in their former lives before they met Jesus, and he argues to them, now that you are a follower of Jesus, you ought to put your hands to something useful for the benefit of others. In other words, once your hands were used for evil, for stealing, but now they ought to be used for good. The same idea is captured in the following verse, in verse 29, where it says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. It's like saying, basically, once your mouths were used as weapons of destruction to hurt others, whether it was through lies or gossip or slander, you, your, your, your mouth was used to tear people down. But now that you follow Jesus, let them become instruments of good, encouraging others, building them up, every chance that you have. One of the great tragedies of sin is that it shipwrecks us from God's original purpose for our lives. In other words, before we meet Jesus, when our lives are in sin, we are like a ship that has gone horribly off course. 
And we end up taking everything that God intended to be used for his glory and we twist it and we use it for our own selfish means. And so hands given by God are used to steal. Mouths created by God are used to curse him and curse others and destroy. It is the picture of a ship lost at sea. We don't understand our destiny. We don't understand our purpose for which we were created. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, it says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he's not, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Peter portrays their former life of sin as basically lost years, wasted years, living outside of the purpose of the will of God, the things that he intended for us. In essence, what Peter is saying is, You've wasted enough years living that way. They're lost. They're gone. But don't lose another day of your life living in that lostness from which you have been delivered. What I'm saying is is this. God's full purpose in salvation is not only to save us from death, but to restore us to our original purpose of serving him in this life. In other words, God's goal is not only that hands that once stole would steal no longer, but that they would be redeemed for his purpose so that they would become tools for accomplishing his will. I think that is the fundamental frame of everything that we're going to be talking about over the course of this month is that the full picture of redemption is not only that we were rescued from our sin, but in the course of that rescue, God brings us to that place where we can basically discover what our original purpose was for life, of living for the things that God intended for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What, what, the, what Paul is saying through that is that God had already mapped out a purpose for your life, a plan for your life, and sin had taken you off course from that plan. But as he redeems you and now, as you are now recreated in Christ, you can discover what those purposes are in your unique makeup of your talents and your gifts, your strengths, and even your weaknesses and limitations, all of your life experiences and influences, what the Bible is saying is that God has set a course for you of good works that he has intended for you to fulfill in your life. And now the invitation is walk in those things. Fulfill those things in your life. Live them out as God intended, live in his will for you. Over and over again in the Bible, we see how God saves people. And in the message of salvation is almost always attached with it a sense of a calling into his service. 
Long way back as we were looking in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8, we saw Jesus' encounter with this demon-possessed man in this region known as the Gerasenes in Gentile territory across the Sea of Galilee. And from all indications, it seems that Jesus had freedom from literally thousands of demons that were tormenting him. And after saving him and rescuing him, we find this interesting exchange between Jesus and this freed man. In Luke chapter 8, verse 38 to 39, it says, The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. In other words, what Jesus was saying to this man was, Now that you're saved, you have a mission. And it's not to come and follow me. It's to go back to your hometown and go to those people that you once terrorized when you were demon-possessed and let them know what I have done for you. That's your mission. That's your calling. When God called the apostle Peter as he was fishing one day, we know the story, right? They were out in the boat and Jesus says, cast the net on the other side and he ended up catching this enormous catch of fish. And in Luke chapter 5 and verses 8 and 10, it says, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. In other words, your days of fishing are over now. I'm calling you to be a fisher of men. Come and follow me. You are taking your first steps into the discovery of what my plan has always been for you, Peter. The Apostle Paul shares his testimony at the end of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 22, verse 21, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that's what, what Paul is testifying is to the fact that most, just about all the other apostles were called to the Jews, largely, staying in Jerusalem. But he says, God gave me a special calling to go to distant lands and bring this gospel message to Gentiles who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And that's why in his letter to the Romans, he refers to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. These men, as well as many other examples in the Bible, make it clear that our salvation becomes the first steps in our journey of discovering God's plan for us. It's like being a lost person who finally found a compass and you understand now where you're supposed to go, what your destiny is. And as Paul describes in Ephesians, it's living out the good works that God has intended for you to live out in your life. Now I want to say this. I think a message like this can easily conjure images of inner city projects and mission trips to Africa and things like that. But this morning, I want us to start by simply looking at the situations that are right in front of you right now. Your family, your workplace, even here at ICC. And what I'm asking you is this. Do you sense the good works that God is calling you to in the things that you are facing right now in your life? Do you see it from that perspective? 
What I'm saying is, is this. In my years of pastoral ministry, what I find often so frustrating is how many Christians fall short in their faith of being able to see the challenges in their lives as ministry opportunities that God is inviting us to embrace. The truth is for many of us, where our faith takes us to is a place of maybe seeking God, but seeking God often from a very defensive posture. Lord, help me get out of the situation. I, I don't think I can handle it. God, change this person because she is driving me crazy or at least make her go away, you know? Um, Lord, fix this. God, just get me through this. In other words, so many of our prayers center around self-preservation and survival. But what I'm saying to you this morning when I'm talking about a calling to serve is that God wants so much more than to just help you survive a situation in your life, to get through it. He wants to use you as an agent of change to accomplish his will in that situation. And here is the truth is, for many Christians that I run into, our faith cannot bring us to that place of praying those kind of prayers. What I'm saying is, is this. God's kingdom advances when we as Christians go on the offensive participating in what God wants to accomplish in our world. Do you understand that? It's not just about surviving and getting through. It's about prayers that say things like, God, how do you want to use me to bring about change in this situation? God, how can I serve this person that is driving me crazy and be a blessing to them so that you can reach them through me. I want to ask you that sincerely this morning. Do you pray prayers like that? Do you pray kingdom prayers that not only ask God to preserve you and get you through something, but to use you in that situation? Is your faith in God that big? These are prayers that go on the offensive, not just trying to survive, but believing that God has a greater purpose and wanting to be a part of that purpose. I think one of the most powerful illustrations of this kind of faith is found in the life of a man found in the Old Testament by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes. During the days of Israel, when originally they were deported out of Israel under captivity by the Babylonians, and then eventually fell under the rule of the Persians. And so the vast majority of the Jews were living in exile in a foreign country, and only a small remnant was left behind in Jerusalem, living uh, in squalor. One day, Nehemiah, as the cupbearer to the king, received a delegation of Jews that came from Jerusalem and gave him this report of what was happening in his home country. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, it says, While I was in the city of Citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile 
and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So the report that this delegation from Jerusalem brought to Nehemiah broke his heart. And he realized what a dire situation his people were in back home. But here is the thing. Rather than wallowing in that depression, Nehemiah goes on the offensive. And he does so by beginning with prayer, intercessory prayer. Interestingly, he begins by repenting for a people that cannot repent for themselves. And he begins to cry out to God. In verses 4 to 7, it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sin we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And then Nehemiah ends his prayer with these words in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he comments, I was the cupbearer to the king. It becomes clear by the end of Nehemiah's prayer that his intention is not only to pray for his people, but to get personally involved, to become part of the solution. By pointing out that he was a cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah was in essence saying that he understood he was in a very unique position to do something about this tragedy. He was in a position of influence that he could make a difference in what was happening to his people. And so he says, God, grant me favor as I take this risky step of faith and stand before this pagan king and ask him to let me return to my people. And if you know the story of Nehemiah, God does show him favor. And Nehemiah is used in an awesome and mighty way to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This is the starting point that I want to get us to as we launch into this month of looking at a life of service. What does God want of your life? What is he asking of you? What is the difference that he wants to make through you in your family, in your community, in your workplace, in this church? One of the summer community groups this year uh, went through John Ortberg's series on understanding the will of God uh, called All the Places to Go, How Will You Know? And right now, I just want to play for you one of the testimonials that was featured in that series about this guy by the name of Peter, a mechanical engineer. 
that I think really illustrates very well uh, what we're talking about this morning. So let's go ahead and listen to his testimony for it. It'll just run about three, four minutes. I'll come back here and continue in the sermon. When I think about that testimony of Peter, um, what I think is this, is Peter could have defined victory as surviving a horrible childhood and the trauma of abuse and beating the odds. He ended up going to Cal Poly, a very competitive school, got an engineering degree, and he's very humble about it, but he's actually the owner, the founder of that steel company, you know? And I think he could have easily said, that's the win. That's the victory, is I survived a horrible childhood, and I beat the odds, and I became something. I became somebody. And I think the truth is, for most of us, that is probably how we would define victory, define the win. But I think Peter understood that God wanted so much more for his life than just surviving trauma and addiction and achieving worldly success, becoming a wealthy businessman. And so he transformed his experience of abuse into ministry, helping others who have gone through similar experiences. I really love what he said in that testimony. What I wanted was a different story. I didn't want the story to be about me as this great sinner and then being forgiven, period. I wanted payback on the enemy for what I had endured. That's offensive language, right? Not offensive meaning it offends me, but you understand what I'm saying, right? It's, this is about going on the offensive. I wanted payback on the enemy for what I had endured. My job is to extend God's rule and reign down here in this place. And that is what I live for. I don't want to just be a survivor. I want to be a victor. I want to conquer ground for God's kingdom. I want to be a part of the solution, a part of the work that I believe my Heavenly Father is at work doing in my world around me. John Ortberg says, open doors in the Bible never exist just for the sake of the people offered them. They involve opportunity, but it's the opportunity to bless someone else. An open door may be thrilling to me, but it doesn't exist solely for my benefit. Very rarely in the Bible does God come to someone and say, stay. Almost never does God interrupt someone and ask them to remain in comfort, safety, and familiarity. He opens a door and calls them to come through it. One of the things when I preached through the calling of Gideon a few months back was to recognize how often the callings of God on people's lives are met with resistance and reluctance. And I think there's a very important reason for that. It's because often God, when he calls us to serve him, brings us right back to places of pain, places that we want to avoid, places that we don't want to deal with because in almost any invitation to serve him, there is usually a backstory to that invitation, isn't there? There's usually some context. And often it can involve darker moments in our life, things that we want to move away from, things that we don't want to embrace. 
We looked at Gideon. Before Gideon could become a mighty warrior, he had to confront all of the doubts that he had about his own sense of worth. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. I'm a coward. I am a nobody. How can I become a mighty conquering general? Moses we looked at as well. By the time that God calls Moses to deliver his people from slavery, he was a broken down 80-year-old elderly man tending sheep in the desert for 40 years. And asking Moses to go back to Egypt was like asking a man to return to the place of his greatest failure and humiliation. Where 40 years earlier, he had murdered a man in his misguided attempt to save his people. It's interesting how that happens in life, isn't it? I think this is precisely why it is so hard for us to step into these invitations to serve. It's because often the very places that God is trying to bring us to are places of pain, places of brokenness, places of darkness, places in essence where we feel that we've been rescued from. Maybe you too came out of a, a very dysfunctional family. And your only thought is, thank God Jesus rescued me from that. I'm a survivor. But the thought of going back into that family is unbearable. It's unthinkable. But maybe that's exactly what God wants to do. I want to use you as an agent of change in that family. I want you to be a blessing for them. Maybe for some of you, you really struggle volunteering for anything here at ICC because you've had a track record of struggle with that, serving and getting burnt out and serving with wrong motives and maybe even being in a, a toxic environment that was not very conducive to spiritual growth and you kind of look at that and all that baggage weighs you down. And saying, I just can't serve. I can't do that. And what God is asking of you is a step of faith. To say that, to come full circle in the healing that I have intended for you is often to bring you back to those places that you're trying to run away from and seeing that I can empower you and enable you to be a healing agent, an agent of change and transformation to those very things I have rescued you from. I want to ask you that this morning. What are your hang-ups when it comes to serving? whether it's in your family, whether it's in your workplace, in your neighborhood. Maybe for some of you, when you try to envision that kind of service in your workplace, your hang-up is, you know, I feel like I've blown it at work. You know, my coworkers know me a certain way. I've already established a pattern, and if I suddenly try to be all Jesus on them, <laughs> they're going to freak out. And they're going to say, what are you, man? And you think, I just... I'm in a rut. I've dug a hole for myself. And this is just how I'm known at work. I don't think I could represent Christ in that setting unless I get a totally new job and start over with a new company. And I want to challenge you that maybe even in that rut that you've gotten yourself to in your workplace, God is saying, I have plans for you there. I want you to bear witness to your coworkers. I want you to love them and serve them and bring them to myself through your ministry of service 
to them. This is the heart of what it means to embrace a life of service. It's to see how God redeems that brokenness and often sends us back into that brokenness to do His work, empowered by Him. Now, I recognize sharing that, that's a very weighty thing. And I think for some of you, it may feel almost crushing. And I'm going to say that the only way that we can live that life is we first understand what God has done for us, what He has accomplished for us, and what He still wants to accomplish in our lives. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 39, I'm just going to close with this. Paul says this to strengthen all believers. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. I want to say that as we launch into this series and have this bit of time of response and prayer that I think for a lot of us, um, we are really ruled by our fears more than by our faith. And I think if we're really honest, the extent of our faith takes us to that place of thanking God for enabling us to survive some tough situations. But I think for many of us, where our faith falls short is to follow up that thanksgiving with bold prayers, courageous prayers that says, um, give me eyes to see how you see things here, God. Open my eyes to let me see the good works that you've prepared for me. Um, I think many of us lack in our faith to be able to pray conquering prayers. God, conquer my family. 
conquer my spouse, conquer my workplace, conquer this church. I think the fullness of salvation is only realized when we come to that place of recognition in our lives that our salvation just launched us into the very first steps of a journey of serving his kingdom, of serving his purposes. And here is the God's honest truth speaking to you as your pastor is. The truth is many of us are not there at that place of living as those kingdom citizens are conquering ground for God. We're just surviving. We're just treading water. Just trying not to sink. And it's not about heroism and doing something radical or trying to get more passionate. It's about the size of the God that we see, that we worship. And so that's where I want to start as we launch this series is to ask the Holy Spirit to give us a correct view of the God that we worship who is more than able to meet our inadequacy with his power to enable us to do what we cannot do by sheer human effort. But as we rely on the power of his spirit, we by faith take risky steps of faith like Nehemiah did. Like Nehemiah, we pray for those who cannot pray for themselves. We intercede. And we not only survive, but we thrive. And we become those who advance God's kingdom in every realm that he gives us opportunity. And some of you know that you're not in that place right now. And my simple invitation to you this morning would be to pray for that faith that sees a God that has that heart toward you and wants to use you in that way. Would you pray to God and say, I want to know the reality of that truth, that in Christ I am more than a conqueror. I'm not just a survivor. I'm not even just a conqueror. I am more than a conqueror for the kingdom of God. Use me, Lord, for your purposes. Just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team will come and lead us in a time of response.